0: you are listening to this sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. But today we're going to continue our our way cherry-picking through the book of Acts. Uh, Last week, if you weren't here with us, we spent some time in Acts chapter 5 last week and we talked about Ananias and Sapphira. And one of the things that we pulled out of that story was that, that God is always protecting His church. But as we dive into the story of Stephen today, that statement can come into question. And so let's jump into the text. Actually, we're not going to jump into the text because we're covering about two and a half chapters of of Acts today. So instead of spending the whole time together reading out of the text, I'm going to summarize what's going on. And I'm going to start by setting the stage and reminding us what is going on in the church at this point. So we talked about Ananias and Sapphira. Right after them, Peter and John get themselves arrested yet again for preaching the word, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling uh, religious rulers in Jerusalem. And while they're there, they're telling the, the Sanhedrin's like, hey, you guys have got to stop what you're doing. You have to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're like, ah, uh, no, we can't do that. Sorry. And so they're like, okay, what, is, what do we do? How do we stop these guys in this Jesus movement that is taking place in our city? So they come together and they're trying to devise a plan. And then this guy stands up and he's one of the most well-respected teachers in the land. His name was Gamaliel. And he says, hey guys, Look, we've seen this before. We've seen people rise up and movements start. And, if they, and most of them were of man and of man's desires. And, and those ones died out. But if this is of God, there's nothing we can do about it. And there nothing could be done, done about it, right? And we continue to see God's church thriving in the city of Jerusalem. People being added to their number every day. And as we come to chapter 6, we see this thriving church experience what happens in a growing church, some growing pains. And as chapter 6 opens, we, we're told about these, these two different factions within the church. We have the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews who are coming at each other. Now, Hellenistic Jews can be described as people who are, are Greek-speaking Jews, And the Hebraic Jews are those who speak Aramaic. Or maybe a simpler explanation would be out-of-towners and locals. But what's going on between them is that the Hellenistic Jews believe that their widows are not being taken care of the same way that the widows of the Hebraic Jews are being taken care of. They feel like they are being passed over when it comes time for the the food to be spread out. And so the twelve apostles get together... These are Jesus' original disciples. And they have to figure out what to do here. And as they're talking about it and, and they come to a decision, they're like, you know what? It's not good for us to be distracted by this problem. But it is a problem and it has to be addressed. But we have to focus on prayer and the preaching of God's word. So they ask the people, they say, hey, pick seven men of wisdom and full of the Spirit among you, and we will give them the responsibility of this, distribution of the food. And so they do. They choose seven men among them that are full of the Spirit, that are full of wisdom, and one of those guys was a guy by the name of Stephen. And the text says that Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And right after this conflict within the church, we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that says that so the word of God spread, even in the midst of chaos within the church, the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. God is still working in this church. It is still thriving. It still has an amazing reputation among the people in the city of Jerusalem. So much so that even priests are coming to the faith. And some of you might be like, well, duh. Priests are religious people. Of course they'd be coming to faith. But these are different. These priests operate underneath Judaism, a different religious belief our predecessors. And so for them to be able to, to put aside the traditions and the old way of doing thing and see that God was doing something new was a pretty cool big deal. I just think it's really awesome that even, even those people were letting go and being open to God moving in their lives. So anyways, this is the point in the text where the story comes back and focuses on Stephen. And we're told that Stephen is doing amazing wonders through the power of God that is living inside him. But then there's this group of Jews from a synagogue that do not like what he's doing. They don't like how he's teaching, what he's teaching about, and they start to oppose him. They start to argue with him to try to prove him wrong. But, unfortunately for them, Stephen is operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is giving him wisdom and giving him everything that he needs to say to shut these guys down. And this ticks these guys off. So frustrated by this, these men from this synagogue gather together some witnesses, some people that would be willing to lie about what Stephen is teaching about And so these guys and their false witnesses go and they grab Stephen and they drag him before the Sanhedrin, this ruling body in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, the same group of people that Jesus was brought before after he was arrested, the same group of people that Peter and John went before. And the false witnesses get up in front of the Sanhedrin and start to to spew their lies about Stephen, <clears throat> saying things like he's against the temple, and he wants to get away, do away with the law that was given by God. He's talking about this Jesus who said he was going to destroy the temple in three days, and and they just want he wants to do away with the customs that we have lived with forever. And after the false accusations are thrown at Stephen, the text tells us that these. These guys are all sitting there staring at him intently, waiting for his response. And they notice something, that he has the face of an angel. When I've read this before, I've always imagined this as Stephen standing there, looking sheepish and innocent with the glowing orb behind his head, all angelic. But as I was reading this this last week, it, it occurred to me this is not an accurate depiction of what angels are like in the text. I Every mean, time you read through the text and an angel comes on the scene, people's response is absolute terror. In Daniel and in Revelation, the descriptions that we're given of angels are like straight out of a sci fi. And so now I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is not innocent Stephen sitting there like, oh, come at me. No, he's like, come at me, bro. He's got his war face on. He's ready to go. He's, he's staring back just as intently at them as, as they are at him. And then he leans into that and starts to give them a speech, a defense, to show them that he is not trying to do, with it, do away with what the traditions were. To show them that they are not uh, blaspheming God or what Moses did. And he's going to end it with his own accusation. So what he does is he starts from the beginning. The beginning of Israel's story. He goes back to Abraham and starts building his case. He goes from Abraham to Joseph to Moses. And the central theme of what he is trying to teach these guys is that God has raised up people from among us in our greatest time of need to lead us to safety, to, lead, to save us, to, to act as our saving grace. And every time they are rejected. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Moses was rejected by his own people initially and continued to be rejected throughout the course of his ministry. And this is where Stephen drops the mic on him and says, you guys are just like your ancestors. You are no different than they are. Just like they persecuted the prophets who, who prophesied about the righteous one to come, you have done the same thing because you yourselves have persecuted, murdered the righteous one that was promised. You have lived in disobedience. And this infuriates the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. And they're staring at him. They're gnashing their teeth at him. They're just ready to go. They, want, they don't know what to do. They're just kind of, ah. And Stephen looks up in the, in the sky and he, he sees a vision. And it's a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then he tells them, look, I see heaven open And there stands the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. And right here, I want us to jump into the text and read what happens next. If you have your Bibles, we're in Acts 7, verse 57. So after Stephen says that, this is what happens. At this, they covered their ears And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. This means they are throwing rocks at him until he dies. That's what stoning is. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house <clears throat> he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went this is that moment i was referring to earlier where it doesn't really look like God is protecting his church in this instance. Not like he did with Ananias and Sapphira. Or even with Peter and John as they were standing before the same group of men. Those guys got to walk away from that moment. Not unscathed, they were beaten. But they walked away. And it looks like God has allowed one of, one of his most influential, best people in the church to be murdered. And his church to be scattered to the four winds and hunted down from house to house. That does not seem like a protection. I think from here it could be really easy for, for me to launch into a sermon talking about The age-old question of why does bad things happen to good people? But that is not where God has led me today. That is a sermon for another day that is not too far off for us. See, I think what God is wanting me to talk with you guys about from this story, from this account in the text about Stephen, is found... In two verses. In the first half, or the last half of verse one, and all of verse four of chapter eight, Luke includes some very interesting details. He says that everyone except for the apostles was scattered to Judea and Samaria. And then also that as they were scattered, wherever they went, they shared the gospel. I think these two sentences are giving us a possible picture of what had been going on in the church up to this moment before Stephen had, was killed. Up to that moment when Stephen's death became the catalyst for the church to enter in the next chapter of God telling his story through them. Back in 1979, there was an airplane leaving from. New Zealand and they were going on a sightseeing tour over Antarctica and the pilots of this flight were experienced pilots but they had never done this flight before and since they had never done this flight they did not realize that the coordinates that they were given were two degrees off two degrees doesn't seem like that big of a deal but over a course of time, it is. And as time goes by, they end up being 28 miles off course and find themselves right in line with a 12,000-foot active volcano. Tragically, the, the plane struck that mountain and everyone on board was killed. Over 257 passengers, a flight crew, lost their lives because of a small deviation from the correct course. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that what was going on in the church was similar to what we see with this story about the flight out of New Zealand. I think that it may be possible that the church had gone off track a degree or two from their original mission. You remember what the original mission was? We have it in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 6 through 8. says then they gathered around him and asked him lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to israel these are his disciples talking to him after he had risen from the dead and spent 40 days with them he said to them it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth. Matthew captures the same call in his gospel like this. Jesus comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you To the very end of the age. The mission has never been to stay put and build something awesome and amazing. The mission has always been to take that awesome and amazing thing and to take it out into the world, take it out to Judea, to Samaria. One of the things that you will notice as you read through the text is it rarely gives you like the amount of time that passes by. Like There's times where you will read a, a scripture and between one sentence and the next, days, weeks, months have passed by and you don't even know it. And this section, Acts 1 through Acts 7, is just like that. Like We have no idea how much time passes by just by reading through the text from Acts 1.8 where Jesus ascends, gives his mission and leaves in Acts 7 when when Stephen is killed. But we can use scholarship to, to make an educated guess. Most scholars believe that Jesus was crucified in about 28 or 29 A.D. And church tradition holds that Stephen was martyred anywhere between 33 and 36. And thank goodness I was a math major, so I can tell you that's about four to eight years. Four to eight years between the time that Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, spent 40 days with his guys, gave them the mission, ascended to heaven till Stephen was killed in Acts chapter 7. And in that four years, we see God doing amazing things within the church. People are being added to the church every day, being baptized. They're taking care of one another. It's amazing stuff that's going on. But from what we can tell, This is only occurring in Jerusalem. Was there stuff happening around in the smaller villages? I think so, maybe, probably. But everything seems to indicate that the main movement was stuck in the city of Jerusalem. Four to eight years after Jesus had given the mission and ascended. I know it wasn't easy for them in those four to eight years, they... They did face some, some difficult things. They were beaten for talking about the mission of Jesus and his message. But it seems like somewhere along the line, they, they drifted off course and forgot that they were supposed to be taking what they were doing in Jerusalem and spreading it out into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Stephen comes along and is murdered. And God is seeing their drift from the mission and he uses this terrible, terrible circumstance to get them back on track so they can continue the mission of making disciples of all nations. It feels like I need to make a point of clarification after that. I do not believe that God caused the Sanhedrin to go crazy and kill Stephen just so that the church would spread. There are a lot of mysteries about God, many that frustrate me, but most, all of them I'm thankful for because... If I could understand everything about God, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? But one of the things that I have wrestled with a lot in my life is God's sovereignty versus our free will. If you don't know what God's sovereignty means, that's that's a big theological word to describe God's all-powerfulness. I don't think that's a word, but I just made it up. Maybe it is. Is it? I don't like. It is now. God is all-powerful. He's in, all, he's in control of everything. Nothing is out of his control. That is God's sovereignty. Yet in the midst of his all-powerfulness, he gives us the ability to choose for ourselves what we're going to do and how we're going to live. How do those two things Exist together? I don't know. And that was the free choice that these guys of the Sanhedrin were exercising. The free choice that God, this all powerful, all in control deity, gives us. When they were faced with the message that Stephen was giving them about Jesus Christ, they had a choice. And they chose evil. And there's a little bit of irony in my my mind that in Stephen's speech, he talked about Joseph. Because Joseph, at one point in his life, says to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, what you guys had meant for evil, God used for good. And what this group and the Sanhedrin had meant for evil, God ended up using for good. For the good of the early church and the good of the world. But just like those guys in the Sanhedrin, the people of the church that day also had a choice to make as they were scattered. Were they going to hide and cower in the shadows from the danger that now existed because of the message that they had been preaching and living, getting off course again, or were they going to continue the mission? And we know, thankfully, that they chose to stay on course. They chose to continue the mission. They could not let what they had experienced in Jerusalem die off with them. And they spread it and talked about it everywhere they went. And Paul echoes this same truth uh, spoken by Joseph in his letter to the the Romans in Romans chapter 8. He says, God uses all things for the good of those who love him. And we don't always get to see that. We don't always get to experience that just like Stephen didn't And many of the early church didn't get to see that or experience it. But good will always come. This account of our, this early church has caused me to think about us, you and I. Our little church here in this small Pacific Northwest town. We are an extension of that early church. We we only exist because they stayed on mission back then. Because they responded to that course correction and stayed on mission. And we are the same church. And we have the same mission that they did. But we also face some of the same dangers of drifting off course and losing sight of the mission, collectively as real life on the Palouse, the church, but uh, individually as well. We're all called to go, and wherever our going takes us to be engaging in that place that God has brought us, engaging by living out the way of Jesus and inviting others into it with us. But we all have the choice of whether or not we will continue with the mission or get distracted. Knocked off course by the many things that can bump us a degree or two off. Things like comfort. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with comfort or inherently evil about it. But when it becomes the lens with which we make our choices on the things that we're going to do the way we're going to spend our money, the things that we're going to talk about from up here, the things that we're going to choose to follow or not follow out of God's text, because of comfort, we've drifted off course. And living in this comfort can lead to complacency choosing to be unaware of the dangers that exist around us. In the military, we had a saying, complacency kills. And in this sense, complacency kills the mission of God. Perhaps fear is the thing that knocks you off. Fear of change fear of losing control, of being wrong, of missing out in life, the fear of the dangers that exist because we follow Jesus, because it's not safe, a fear of failing to actually succeed in what it is that we were called to do. And when I think of all these things that can distract us and get us off course, the Holy Spirit often reminds me of something in particular. He reminds me of a moment when Jesus is standing in a city called Caesarea Philippi. This is a Roman, very Roman, very pagan city north of the Galilee. And in Matthew 16, you can read, is one of the places you can read about what happens here. But they're standing in this city, and we do have a picture. There we go. I imagine them standing close to this site. This is a sacred site in Caesarea Philippi. And in that cave is where a a spring bubbles out. And there were temples to Pan and Zeus up there at the rocks, just to the right. And this is a sacred site, and it's one of a few across ancient, the ancient world that is referred to as a gateway to Hades. Because of the way it's designed, they believed that was a gateway into Hades, into hell. And it is while they are standing here that Peter declares, You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus is like, Yes, good job. And then he's like, The gates of hell will not prevail. This life will not prevail from the church that I build. The thing that we fear the most, our greatest opposition, the world, Satan, cannot stop us from the mission of Jesus Christ. If we are a church that he builds, nothing can stop us from being on mission. And so we have to do our part. And it can be easy to veer off a degree or two from day to day, from week to week. So we put things into our lives that help correct our course. We join a life group. And we get into community with those people. And we talk about the text. We go to restoration night. And we take a class that helps us with a specific healing in our life that we need to address. We go to men's breakfast or women's coffee connection so we can connect with other men who are walking life the way we are and women who are going through the same struggles we do. And those help bump us back onto the path as we go along. And it's never too late And it's never too soon to be corrected back onto the path. Along with these are one of the best ways for us to avoid drifting off mission is to have a clear understanding and a continued communication about what the mission and vision is. And know what our part is within that. Here at Real Life, we... Phrase that mission and vision like this that we want to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. And we do that by creating biblical disciples through relational environments. You have a part, I have a part, we all have a part in this mission. We need to continue the mission. One of the other course correctors that we have in our lives is communion. And if you're new with us today, we celebrate communion each and every week. We, have, we use a phrase open table. And all that means is that you don't have to be a partner, or a regular attender here at Real Life to take communion with us, to remember and celebrate. We just ask that it, you've made that decision in your life to surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that you are doing your best to walk the path and stay on course with Him. If you are there, we'd love to have you celebrate. If you didn't grab one of these things on your way in, there's some ushers in the aisle here. If you just raise your hand, they'll bring one to you. But I take this opportunity myself each and every week to evaluate where I am on the path. How have I been doing? Am I a degree or two or 20 off this past week? And I I, I get back on the path. I remember what Jesus did for me. And I celebrate that his sacrifice on the cross and his victory from the grave helps me to get back on the path. And so as we celebrate communion together, I just want to encourage each one of you to do the same today. Use this as a moment to to course correct if you're off the path. And find ways throughout the week, whether it's through your life group, whether it's through other communities, coming to restoration night, men's breakfast, find ways to get yourself back on the path. But on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember together his sacrifice. And then after the meal, he took the cup said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as do it. Let's remember together. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for uh, who you are. I want to thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love, a love that does not leave us in the darkness. A love that works all things out for the good of those you love. And even though, Lord, many times we don't get to see what that is, we don't get to experience what that is, Lord, help us to to have the faith to trust that that is true. Lord, I just pray for each one of us today that as we are leaving here today that we will make it an active part of, of who we are and how we walk with you to evaluate where we are on the path. Have we deviated? Are we, are we allowing things to knock us and dis- off the path and distract us from, from the mission that you have given us? Lord, reveal those things to us. Help us to remove them from our lives so that we can continue mission. In Jesus' name.